Welcome to A Story of Us, our Humanity, History, and Department. Today you'll hear our second conversation episode between Dr. Mark Moritz and Aaron Kane. Dr. Moritz works with pastoralist groups in Cameroon and Oman, and Aaron works with Diana monkeys in the Thai forest. Both Aaron and Dr. Moritz incorporate ecology into their particular research questions. Generally, ecology is the study of the relationship between the physical environment and the plants and animals that live there. So, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves. I'm Dr. Moritz, or Dr. Mark Moritz. Um, I'm a cultural anthropologist, or a social anthropologist, or an ecological anthropologist. And sometimes I even don't even know whether I'm still an anthropologist, because most of my research is interdisciplinary uh, with people outside the department. Uh, but I still look at the world with an anthropological lens. Um, I'm Erin Kane. Um, I am a primatologist. I'm a graduate student in the department, so I'm in my fifth year of my PhD. Um, and yeah, I consider myself an anthropologist as well. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about our respective research, um, which seems very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you work with, primatolo- uh, with primates, Diana monkeys uh, in Ivory Coast. Uh, and I work with uh, mobile pastoralists, so people move around with their cattle um, seasonally. Nevertheless, I think we, our research have methods and, and theories have a lot in common. I yeah, I think we're asking similar questions about our populations and our study subjects as well. So I'm really interested in understanding the ways that monkeys are responding to changes in food availability um, in kind of a seasonal sense. Um, so I'm looking at sort of a small time scale and a very local scale in terms of these differences. Yeah, and I'm interested in how pastoralists manage common pool resources, mainly grass, which the cattle eat, uh, and how, how they distribute themselves over these available resources. And so it's also natural resources and natural resource use, and uh, also movements to where the resources are. And I think this also kind of speaks to why I consider myself an anthropologist, even though I study monkeys, because I think of the research that I do as putting human responses to ecology and kind of human behaviors in kind of a cross-species perspective, so looking at what humans are doing in relation to what their closest relatives are doing. So the, the Diana monkeys give that additional perspective on what humans are up to. And it's like a kind of ecological anthropology, um, because mm-hmm. ecology really de- Determines is maybe great, great work, but it really great word, but it uh, really influences where uh, um, people go, where uh, uh, Diana monkeys go. In that sense, there's not a lot of difference. Or of course, there is a lot of difference. <laughs> but if you look at it that way, uh, there's not a lot of difference between um, um, the mobility of, 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 of non-human primates and human primates. Mm-hmm. So you're working with a with a pastoralist group in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I started as an undergraduate researcher, and then I've been going back to the same place over and over uh, for now for more than twenty years. As I work with uh, pastoralists, they're both Arab and uh, Fulbe pastoralists. They move around seasonally with their animals, but they also do something that uh, your Diana monkeys do as well, is that they go out during the day to look for resources, and so they make a kind of round where they, they, they graze to take their animals to pasture, uh, to grasses, and maybe tree forage, and then they water them, and then they return to the campsite uh, where they spend the night. So the, the, gr- the monkeys that I'm looking at, um, I work in the Thai forest in Ivory Coast, which is in sort of, I guess, Africa, you've got West Africa. So the Thai forest is in the southwestern part of the country, 
really, really close to the border with Liberia, like a couple miles away from the Liberian border. And it's the largest chunk of intact forest in West Africa. So it's this really fabulous place to work. Um, lots and lots of primates in the forest and chimps and leopards and elephants and all sorts of cool things. Um, but I'm looking really specifically at two or three groups of Diana monkeys, um, which is one species in the forest, and trying to understand exactly what resources they have available to them and how their those resources change over the course of a year um, and how that affects everything from their behavior to their mobility patterns to their stress levels and kind of the, the impact on their teeth and so on and so forth. So how do you measure uh, stress levels and what, what causes stress? Is there anything about the mobility that causes them stress? Um, it's entirely possible, so I'm still trying to analyze the data about how their mobility patterns are changing over the course of the year, but what I do to measure stress is I collect fecal samples mm -hmm. and then I um, look at concentrations of kind of metabolized stress hormones, so cortisol, um, in those fecal samples. And then I tr I'm trying to relate that to the amount of fruit in their diet and the amount of fruit available in the environment and um, social interactions and things like that. So is there also a lot of conflict between groups of Diana monkeys over fruit trees and where they go and how does that affect the stress levels as well? I suspect that it does. So there is a lot of conflict. Um, and in fact, in some cases, it's really intensive conflict. So my advisor actually saw um, a group of females attacking and killing a stranger female around one of these um, kind of valuable resources. So for the Diana monkeys, their most valuable resources, these big ripe fruit trees. Um, and they tend to have areas of overlap between groups. Um, where multiple groups are trying to use the same valuable fruit tree. Um, and so those are places where we tend to see these kind of conflicting um, group you know, interactions where you have vocalizations where the males will call back and forth at each other and the females will call back and forth at each other. And sometimes that's enough to make the two groups move away from the area of overlap. But other times it actually escalates to chases and bites and females killing each other. It's kind of interesting because the people I work with, they have a, uh, what I call an open system or open access or even call it open property regime. Is that there's no territories and there are no home ranges. Uh, and so everybody has open access and so there's no conflicts over between pastoralists over access to resources. Of course the resources are very different. And so mm -hmm. it's grass, there's lots of it, it's relatively small and it's very difficult to defend. And so your, your Diana monkey is working with they call I think clumped resources, mm -hmm. highly valuable. It's one tree or a couple of trees, uh, but for pastoralists that's very different. Moreover, what I found in my research is that because of seasonality and irregular irregularity in rainfall uh, or unpredictability in rainfall and, and bushfires, etc., you never know where the resources are, and so it makes no sense to have a particular territory because there may be no grass one year. Mm -hmm. So that's why pastoralists are very mobile. How much space are they covering on, a, on an annual basis? So uh, about, t it varies of course, but it ranges from 75 kilometers to 200 kilometers wow. or more uh, in our study. And so they move with their camp and with their family and the cattle, and they go from one place to another. And there's a couple of uh, what they call campsites where they spend a couple months. And they consider that kind of a home, often they go back to exactly the same spot 
in the kitchen is exactly the same spot, the mm-hmm. cattle are in the same spot. And I always make the joke, I have this image from Google Earth uh, uh, in my presentations that shows camps. And you go, so on Google Earth you can see a pastoral campsite. And there's these big round spots in the middle of the campsite. And I ask my audience, so what is that? And that they don't, often they don't know. Just often, sometimes there's one person who knows. But basically it's cattle dung. And I say, you can see shit from space. Um, <laughs> because it's the accumulation oh, of... Wow cattle dung over the years mm-hmm. and so sometimes it's that high. Yeah. How um, big is your study area in total then if you if individual groups are moving around? Yeah, it's yeah, that's, a, that's the problem so it's a, it's it's I have a, it's an open system and so people move from Cameroon to Nigeria to Niger to Chad um, and so they go everywhere but I but I blocked out in a particular section in the floodplain where I worked. And so that's where I intensively monitored uh, pastoral mobility and pastoral dis- the distribution of pastoralists. And that's about a thousand square kilometers. Oh. And I'm from the Netherlands. I cannot translate that into my Well, I think my groups are kind of intensively studied area and the Thai forest is a little over like three square kilometers. So... I know that area really, really well, but it's a very small island in a larger forest. But even I don't think the forest is comparable in size to where you're working. So, so you already know by head uh, where all the fruit trees are, so you could make the seasonal round <laughs> as a Diana monkey? Well, I don't know if I'd be quite as good at as, as the Diana monkeys, but um, there are definitely times where they're relying on the same, you know, when a particular fruit tree starts fruiting every year I know exactly what other trees we're going to visit that day when I'm following the monkeys. So it raises all kinds of questions about the memory of that mm-hmm. and the learning of how they learn their movement paths. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I don't know that it's possible to get at with Diana monkeys, but um, sooty mangabees are in the same forest mm-hmm. and chimpanzees. And there have been some researchers, Carlene Janmat and some of her colleagues have shown that they have spatial memories and they have these mental maps of where fruit trees are within their environment and so I don't think Diana monkeys are quite as complex um, but they certainly follow the same path on a regular basis. So one of the interesting things that I found with with the people I work with and often they're called nomads Mm -hmm. which means that they suggest that they just wander about which is not the case and so they make seasonal rounds they're relatively predictable but they're not fixed is that uh, they have homes, as I mentioned, the the Google Earth image where you can see the campsites. That's where they stay and where they have have attachment and also animals have attachment. Mm -hmm. So animals at some point, they know that it's time to move and they start becoming restless and they want, uh, and then the people have to follow. Mm -hmm. And animals also do better there. And so they know the grass, they know the area, uh, they they thrive there and the humans are happy there too. Uh, other researchers found the same thing among the Tuareg. Oh, so they are also highly mobile, but they have an investment in space. And so, so they almost like to talk about home, and it's not something that we don't normally associate with um, mm-hmm. uh, nomads. However, I always thought nomads, they move all, all around the place. They know everything, mm-hmm. but no, they don't. Um, they know their particular seasonal round or their orbit, but they don't know much else beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they may pass cities or lakes that they have no idea of, 
because it's not on their seasonal round. And especially when you're a herder, you're always with your cattle. You have to take your cattle uh, to pasture. You have no day off. So nomads, we think they're, they're out there. They're almost like global citizens, but they're also very provincial in the sense that they only know the places right. they move to. Um, do you have a sense of what would make them change their path or disrupt their orbits? Yeah, so drought is a big one. Uh, so when there's not enough grass, they move elsewhere. And so the, the food is the most important thing, mm -hmm. food for the cattle. And so if there's no grass, they move. The other thing is insecurity. And so the, the area where we do research, there have been bandits, um, there have been cattle thefts. And th but at some point, bandits were um, not just stealing cattle, they were kidnapping children and hold, holding them for ransom. Um, and then forced the herders to sell their cattle to pay for the ransom. And that was a period when lots of people changed their routes and they camped in greater groups because there was uh, security in numbers. And they avoided areas where they expect suspected uh, bandits. Mm -hmm. Which makes me think of your Diana monkeys because you're looking at where the fruit trees are, but mm -hmm. you also mentioned big predators. Mm -hmm. And so how do these predators interfere with the movements? Yeah, the... Um Eagles are, so the big three predators that these guys deal with are eagles, um, big cats, and then chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. um, in the core of the forest where I work, there isn't very much poaching, so they don't deal with that. But um, closer to the, the outskirts of the forest, there is a lot of poaching. Um, but one of the ways that they respond to predators is by forming these associations with other species. And so some of the monkeys are always on the ground, so they're better at picking up on the terrestrial predators. And the Diana monkeys are really excellent at um, spotting aerial predators, so like hawks and crowned eagles and stuff like that. Um, but while I was there, um, so the chimps in the forest have a kind of seasonal hunting pattern as well, because they take advantage of the rainfall. Um, which makes it slippery, so the monkeys are a little bit more unstable, and it's also so noisy. They it's, hunt for monkeys. They hunt for monkeys, yeah. And it's also, it's noisy, you know, with the rain falling, and so it's harder for the monkeys to hear that the chimps are coming. Um, but the chimpanzees in Thai do this thing called buttress drumming, where they, like, bang on the bottoms of trees, and you hear it for these really long distances. Um, and when they start going on hunts, they pant hoot and they get really excited. And so the monkeys usually hear that there are chimps coming. And then once that happens, they go up into the trees and they're totally silent and they don't move and they don't eat. And it just like, it really ruins my day because I can't take any more data. Um, and the chimps are actually, um, a lot of the times the chimpanzees and the Diana monkeys are targeting the same fruit trees um, because chimpanzees are also relying on ripe fruit for when they're not eating monkeys. Um, but so there will be like whole weeks where every day we'll run into the chimp group and then I have no data because the Diana monkeys are just sitting in the top of the trees silent. So, so I was going to say, then you have data. Well, yeah. Of the interference <laughs> of the chimpanzees yes. <laughs> with the mobility patterns. I do have that, but I can't collect data on behavior or feeding or anything because they're just, they're not moving and they're hiding and they're, they're not really eating anything either. They're just crossing their fingers that the chimps will leave to be anthropomorphic about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, so, so can you tell me more about your methods because um, so earlier we talked about the study area and mm -hmm. you said I think it was a three square miles um, so it's a relatively small area but if you just if I 
remember correctly about how you collect your data, mm -hmm. it's very intensive and you cover a lot of ground. Yeah, so it's, it's actually only about three square kilometers, so it's okay. even smaller than miles. Um, but yeah, so my day-to-day my -day data collection is I wake up um, pretty early in the morning, like around five, and then walk out to where the monkeys slept the previous night and try to catch them before they wake up, and then I follow them all day. Um, and I take scan samples, so every um, half hour I look and see what everybody in the group is doing and note that down. Um, and I also take focal observations where I'll follow one individual for a set period of time and mark everything that they're doing and you know where in the canopy they are and what food they're eating and things like that. Um, so that's my main kind of behavioral data collection. But then because I'm interested in understanding um, food availability and kind of seasonal shifts, um, the two other big components that I have are um, what's called phenology trails, so looking at the productivity of the forest on a regular basis, so seeing when trees are fruiting and when the leaves are flushing and things like that. So we have a, a trail that we walk with about 350 trees on it that we mark how well they're producing. And then I also um, walked about six kilometers worth of um, trails through the two, my group's home ranges to count and measure and identify all of the trees in, within those transects. So wow. it worked out to about 6,500 trees. Wow. <laughs> That's um, impressive. Well, the, uh, unlike your study species, I can't ask them what they're doing. So I need to be able to, I can't just rely on their sense of what they're seeing. I have to find out for myself. Now, the people can lie, of course. That's uh, true. Or people can refuse to participate, or they cannot remember very clearly. And so one of the things I do is I ask, I do a transhuman survey, and so every year I ask people where they've been in the past year, and they give me the place and the number of days that they've been. And sometimes I get, it adds up to 365 days, but most of the time it doesn't add up to 365 <laughs> days. And so I also use it with, I combine it with observations. And so I go to the camps where people are, I get the GPS location, and I, and I look at who's who's there, uh, whose camps are there. And actually, I don't do most of the work. It's my Cameroonian collaborators who do most of the work. And so then I have hard, or hard, I have observational mm -hmm. data. Uh, and combining that with the interview data gives me a good sense of where people are. And so I've been doing that for eight years. And so I also get a sense if you do it one year, mm -hmm. you get a snapshot. Right. You think that everything stays the same and that there's no, this transhuman orbit always mm -hmm. stays the same. Uh, but if you do it for multiple years for a large sample, and we've been doing it for 100 basilisks or more, uh, or 100 camps or more with over 1,000 uh, basilisks, you get a sense of both the continuity and the change in the transhuman orbits. Mm -hmm. um, and when you mentioned 6,000 trees, I thought that would be difficult. To, that's a lot of data to analyze. Mm -hmm. And similarly, uh, I'm struggling with, I have tons of data, and the stack is yay high. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'll be another, uh, busy for another 20 years analyzing that data. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. Um, it's better to have too much than too little. Yeah, and I, think, I, f I feel like I'm also cheating. <laughs> um, because you've been uh, w observing the trees and seeing what time of fruiting they are. So I've not been observing the grass, or I've mm -hmm. been observing the grass remotely. Mm -hmm. So we use satellite data oh, to get a sense of the quality and the quantity of the grass, mm -hmm. and then use 
the mobility data and match that with the satellite image, uh, the remote sensing data, to see whether we can explain the movements of pastelists by where the high quality and high quantity grasses are. Do you have a sense of how the cattle are responding to move to grass quality and things like that? No, because and so when I wrote this proposal, it was way too ambitious. Um, so one of the things I was going to do is going to measure cattle condition. And so there's this, uh, um, so you can weigh the cattle, and <laughs> but that that's very uh, involved, and most of the cattle are very, they're they're very afraid of their non-owners. Uh, so that would be almost impossible. Then there's a quick and dirty ways when you look at uh, cows and you compare them to different stages mm. or big different pictures of cattle and see how fat or how skinny they are. And I trained my research assistants in that, but the intercoder reliability mm. was very low. And so different research assistants gave different scores mm. to one particular animal. So I gave up on that. Um, I know and generally they do better when the grass is greener. That makes sense. Um, but I think I remember you talking about putting GPS collars on cows to get a sense of their like travel over the course of yep. time. Yeah. So um, there's these GPS, they were actually made for uh, hunters in the US. Mm -hmm. So they can use it with uh, hunt, hunting dogs that track that when they hunt fowl. And so you can, by looking at the, 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 what the GPS does, you know whether the dog is pointing or not. Um, so we put it on cattle, it takes a, a data point every uh, three seconds and of the speed of the animal, uh, the location, the direction, um, and, and the time. And then we used that, um, I, want, I did that for uh, a couple of cows, and then I went, was, went back to OSU. And there are tons and tons of data, just like there are 9,000 yeah. data points, <laughs> but I didn't know what it was, what it meant. Uh, and so I realized that if I want to know more than where they've been, I had to observe those animals. And so I did something similar as you did with your mm -hmm. Diana monkeys. And so we followed the cattle or the herd as they went to pasture for a day. And my colleague, Mwajamu um, Amadou, he had made video recordings and then later we matched the video recordings with the, the, the GPS data. We actually found that the speed of the animal, you can, if you know the speed of the animal, you know whether it's eating, uh, grazing, or whether it's walking or not. Oh, that's neat. So then we could make a very detailed map of when the animals were grazing and when they were walking. That's very cool. Yeah, I would love to be able to GPS color my monkeys, but um, it doesn't work very well in dense forest cover. Um, because you don't get the satellite uh, yeah, signal? Yeah, the satellite signal is not quite as accurate. Um, and it's also because these monkeys are endangered, it's challenging to get permission to dart them and knock them out and put GPS colors on them without really, really good reasons. And so what I end up doing to kind of keep track of what they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis is I just have a GPS unit strapped to my backpack and I follow around more or less under where the group is going. Um, and so one of the things I'm interested in is seeing if home range or daily path length changes over the course of mm -hmm. seasons, if they're traveling longer or shorter at different times of the year. Yeah. Are your pastoralists traveling longer on a day-to-day -day basis depending on seasonality? Yeah, so the rainy season everything is green, there's water everywhere, so the, 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 the movements are very short and the drier it gets, the more you have uh, to walk the, the, the farther places. they have to walk. That's interesting. 
what we've seen. I guess what I enjoy about this conversation is that we have lots. There's lots of commonalities in terms of our research. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in many ways, we also also use the same theoretical framework. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, you use a behavioral ecology framework. Um, I use the concept of the ideal free distribution, which is when the distribution of cattle and grazing pressure m- matches the distribution of the grasses, which is also a concept of behavioral ecology. Yeah, the way that I look at sort of primate behavior and social interactions and things like that is that it's all patterned on the distribution of resources, right? So because Diana monkeys are relying on a clumped resource or a more, um, you know, a research which is a resource which isn't continuous, that has kind of add-on effects of how females are behaving and males and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think, so we have not, so we talked about pastless, we talked about uh, Diana monkeys. Um, but there's also uh, human foragers, mm-hmm. uh, and so for my past list, they make a transhuman, so it's a seasonal movement where they go from rainy season areas to dry season areas. Uh, but basically, they, they, it's the cattle that need the resources. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have also uh, human foragers or hunter-gatherers that also uh, move seasonally or or, le- or not in search for uh, wildlife as mm-hmm. well as uh, plant and uh, plant resources. And I think what's interesting about anthropology, so, so we study the non-human primates and the human primates and then different kinds of uh, uh, human societies and different kinds of non-human primates. Do you see enormous variation in terms of how the resource distribution explains mobility patterns, but also how territorial mm-hmm. um, uh, these different groups or these different species are. I assume that there's also there's lots of variation among yeah. primates yeah. in terms of territorial behavior in relationship to the resource distribution. Absolutely. Um, I think Alex spoke in the, the first episode in this about um, the monkeys that she studies who are relying really heavily on leaves. And so they're not really, you know, they're not fighting over resources to the same extent that the Diana monkeys are. Um, but the other thing that has kind of come through is, I think you mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, but one year's snapshot isn't going to tell the whole story of what you're seeing. And so, um, you know, my research for my dissertation only covers about 15 months of what the Diana monkeys are up to. And so it's great because I have a whole season or a whole year so I can get kind of the range of seasonality in that year. But from year to year, things look kind of different. And especially, um, you know, in the recent past and kind of moving forward, global climate change is really having an effect on things like rainfall and predictability of when things are fruiting. And so I'm sure that what I'm seeing now is going to be very different from what I saw or would have seen 20 years ago and 20 years from now. I think it'll have a big difference. I think uh, Russell Bernard, he's the the methods guru in uh, cultural anthropology, said you have to treat your dissertation research as the part as the beginning of a longitudinal study and so looking at the data that you've collected is like a be, almost like a, a an excellent baseline study for future studies mm-hmm. and so then you if you when if, when you go back right. uh, <laughs> to the Thai forest uh, i'm sure that you will see change i remember that and so i was when i was a, st- a student studying past list for the first time they were complaining the whole time about uh, cattle theft, about the, the not being enough grass, etc. And I really f- came away with the sense that this was the end of pastoralism. And of course, I've been going back 20 years, and every year they complain. And I, 
for they complain for good reasons, and so cattle being stolen and children being kidnapped are not—it's not nothing. Um, but I also learned how resilient the system is and how it, uh, how people are adept to these different circumstances. Um, and so my, the first time I went, my undergrad self would say has a very different vision than uh, the, the vision that I had, or my understanding of uh, pastoralists uh, nowadays. And that's because of, I've been there so many times and I've seen how they change, but also how they've been able to cope with changing climate and insecurity, et cetera. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. We will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us OSU, or check out our website at anthropology.osu.edu.